minimalists. <laughs> All right, here we are. I'm with Andrew McAfee. He's the author of More From Less. Before we dive into some surprise questions today, and before we talk about the pros and cons of capitalism, uh, let's read some more about less. Andy, we, we tend to kick off this with a, um, a little segment here where we read an article or something fascinating just as a jump off point. And I was, uh, I was trolling your, your Twitter account um, earlier this week, or may have even been yesterday, a few days ago, it looks like. Uh, and you retweeted something from Sandra Newman. And um, it's about, I figure we, since we're in these, these times of a pandemic, um, I think hers was a very interesting perspective. And I wanted to read this and maybe we could have a bit of a discussion. And I'm especially in, in, interested in your point of view um, as a um, research scientist and, and seeing where, 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 where we should go from here and how cautious we should be with, uh, with the coronavirus and COVID-19. So Sandra Newman says, okay, this is a very dark thread in response to people saying it's time to reopen America. And they're not afraid. And you're more likely to be killed in a car accident, freedom, blah, blah, blah. Please don't read this if you have to go out to work at an essential job. COVID is now the most common cause of death in the United States. Uh, you're now more likely to die of COVID than anything else. If we reopen America too soon, you or someone you know will almost certainly die or have a case that requires hospitalization on a ventilator. This is... This is what that will be like. And then she goes on to explain how horrible and horrific it is to be on a ventilator. I won't read the entire thing. Sean can put a link to this tweet thread. It's an illuminating tweet thread. Uh, we'll put it in the link to that in the show notes. Now, Andy, um, I think you and I are in agreement with this. We're, we're uh, in our homes right now. We are self-quarantining. And uh, I think it's it's easy for us to to want to get back to normal or back to usual, or at least have some bit of normalcy in our lives. But right now that seems like a, uh, a terrible idea. Yeah, sadly, you're exactly right. We desperately want it. And it's a really bad idea for the reasons that she laid out. And this is one of these times when I feel like we need a lot more public health experts and a lot fewer hardcore libertarians in the mix these days. Because libertarians, the hardcore ones, will say, look, you know, it's my body, it's my health, I'll go do with it what I want, let me go live my life as I choose to, I'll bear the risk. What they get deeply wrong is, again, this idea of an externality, this economic concept that there are things that you do that affect others around you, even if that's not your intent. And in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, man, breathing, sneezing, coughing, these are things that you do that are going to affect other people. So the reason we have to self-quarantine until we can try to bring this virus under control, get treatments, get a vaccine, uh, quarantine long enough that it, that it just vanishes and, and, and the transmission rate goes down, the reason we have to do it is not just to keep every individual safe, whether or not they want to be kept safe. It's so that we can't infect each other. And again, that's a mantra that we just have to keep repeating to us ourselves and each other. The reason I like that Twitter thread so much is she was very honest about it. And she put this very graphic imagery, which I hope you'll share with your audience, about what it is like to be sick enough to need to be intubated while you're still conscious. It's and horrifying. that sounded so terrifying, yeah. terrifying. And there are thousands of people who have had to go through that and there will be more. And I'm actually um, quarantining with my mother, who's not terribly young person anymore. And every time I think about how much I'd like to, you know, loosen up a little bit and go do something or see somebody, I think, is there any, do you want to increase that risk at all that you're going to bring that home to mom? The answer is really easy after that. Of course. It, it, the one thing I'm really worried about is um, it, it's easier for me to, to say this, like, hey, we should stay at home, especially someone like me. I'm, I'm uh, immunosuppressed because of some medication I'm on. Oh. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm even in a higher risk group. And so, of course, it makes sense. Not only does it make sense for me to stay home, but I'm also going to be fine. The, 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 the entire pandemic has, has inserted quite a few um, 
inconveniences into my life, things yeah. that I would have been really mad about uh, several years ago before practicing stoicism or minimalism. And, and uh, you know, we had to cancel or we had to postpone an entire tour. Um, we had oh, wow. to stop filming for this Netflix film that we're working on and uh, all of these other inconveniences. But those are simply inconveniences. You know, stubbing my toe was also an inconvenience and being in traffic is an inconvenience. Uh, and um, I'm able to deal with those things okay. I'm going to be to be fine. Uh, yes, even the inconvenience of my SEP IRA or or, or my yeah. um, traditional IRA being you know, in the tank right now. The, those things are are, are certainly. You, you've described a great list of first world problems, right? I don't, I don't exactly. mean to minimize them at all, but. Those are first world problems. Absolutely. And I'm literally speaking to you right now from an ivory tower. It's an apartment building, <laughs> a, a, a relatively nice. small apartment building. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the one in academia. I thought I had the ivory tower. I <laughs> know, right? Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I've, I have a, a wife and a daughter and we're all, we're going to be fine. We have food. We are able to pay our rent still. We're able to work remotely. We're able to uh pay employees remotely, et cetera. And, and so I'm able to do, do, to do all those things. But then I get a call last week from, from my brother who works in a factory in Ohio. You know, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. And um, uh, he gets laid off and, and his oh, entire wow. factory gets I'm shut sorry. down. Yeah, yeah, and his wife who works an office job and she also gets laid off the same exact week. Oh. And, and um, you know, he, he went to go work at an Amazon fulfillment center in the meantime, making about a third of oh, wow. what he was making manufacturing uh, previously. It's a heroic feat, I think. He's able to, to, to try to pay his mortgage and, and, and uh, you know, put food on the table. But he just went from middle class or lower middle class to poverty level at this point, trying to raise a family on, on you know, close to minimum wage at this point. And um, hopefully it's a temporary setback. But I'm, I'm, what I'm struggling with right now is is this dichotomy, even in my own family, between someone like me and my brother. And of course, when I look at the news, there are so many other examples of this. In fact, uh, podcast Sean and I were just talking about this the other day. I, I still subscribe to the Dayton Daily News, and I get wow. this list of companies who are laying off hundreds of employees in Dayton, Ohio, um, 1500 people at, at GE there. I mean, and, and it, the list goes on and on. It, it, it's almost, it's overwhelming. And so I don't know what to tell people like my brother at this point. It's easy for me to say like, yeah, we should stay home. But um, there are people who whose lives really depend on them being able to work at this point. Yeah. And that question, what would you say to somebody who's just been laid off or what would you say to somebody who's going through this recession to me is a really easy one to answer. It's I am so sorry. Right. Losing your mm -hmm. job hurts. It doesn't matter what that job is. Losing your job hurts. And for lower income people, the economic hurt is much, much worse than it would be for those of us who are more comfortable. Uh, so the Recessions and, and, and pandemics are, are not easy times for people who want to be optimistic. We're going through a rough period. This is a one-two punch that is going to lay a lot of people out. And we, we have to keep that front of mind. The other thing we have to keep in mind is the economy is not going to come back to anything like normal, anything that's re, that's resembles what we would like or anything that's healthy until we beat this virus. So this notion that, you know, because we're, we're feeling a little confident, the, the curves are changing shape, we're, we're going to just ease back and, and let the old economy come back in and let people mingle as, as they used to. This, man, this is a bad idea. It will, it will harm a lot more people and it will not work to get the economy back on track. When you look around at the countries that have done this successfully, they took sharp measures, they took them early, they did not mess around about them. And now we are seeing that they are finally changing the slope of their curves. They are finally comfortable enough to let, let normal activity come back. But you cannot let that happen until you are really, really confident that you've got this virus under control. Now, you've, I've heard you talk about uh, UBI versus negative income tax uh, elsewhere. Yeah. But I, I think right now that, that discussion should be had a whole lot more, especially for people like my brother or people who are unlike my brother who can't even find a temporary 
job to to put food on the table. Uh, I, I think the UBI versus negative income tax, you're more of a proponent for the, the negative income, income tax. Can you explain what that is? In more normal times. And the, the debate is between unconditional cash from the government every month. That's a universal basic income. Universal means kind of no questions asked. Basic means you're not going to get rich, but it will help you live. And the other camp, which says, let's have a negative income tax. And what that means is I make enough money if the government takes some every year via the tax system. For people below a certain income level, uh, the government could just give them money. That's a negative tax. The government's topping up your income year after year. In normal times, I'm a bigger proponent of a negative income tax because it's a direct incentive to work. And I think that work is amazingly important for people, families, and communities. And in normal times, there is not a shortage of work to get that needs to get done, and that can only be done by people. Machines can't do it yet. However, these are not normal times, right? This recession has been so severe, so sudden. It's hit so many different kinds of industries that this is not the time for an academic debate between negative income tax and UBI. This is a time to give life support, income support broadly to lots and lots of people so that they can weather this period that we're living through. Yeah, and, what I like about this is is there's no dogma here. You're saying in regular times you you think you know both of these are potential solutions to help people out. You think one is better than the other. We're certainly in an abnormal time right now, and it might make sense to shift that thinking because of you know the, the sort of the supply demand curve of jobs right now. There just is no supply because of these these strange circumstances that we're in. Yeah, and. Dogma is really one of my least favorite words. I, I don't try to be a partisan about too many things, but in the battle between ideology and evidence, man, I'm hardcore, right? I will man the barricades all day on team evidence over team ideology. Mm. So I don't want my you know, belief in the values of a negative income tax to get in the way of the fact that this, these are not normal times and you might need to look at the evidence and, and respond to it. Now, now up until the, the this pandemic, um, in your book, you talk about the U.S. economy. Isn't it hard to remember any time before this pandemic? It wasn't right. that I, long ago, right? But well, woo, did, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to help me think back to those days. I, I know. I have to look at like I look at videos from we did our last tour stop in February in Salt Lake City, and there are pictures of me hugging like a hundred different people. Oh wow! And it's like uh, we, there's video of it actually on our on our YouTube channel, and and it we had we had to put a disclaimer like, hey, this was before social distancing because. I didn't want to freak people out thinking like we were still going out places and hugging hundreds of people. Um, but, but now before all of that, you know, in, in fact, I read this thing in the New Yorker recently. There was a, a writer, I think it might have been Karen Russell, who, who called it before times, uh, who called you know the, 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 those times the before times. So back in the before times, Andy, um, in, in your book, you talk about how the U.S. economy is growing while using for fewer resources. We, we talked about that a bit. But my question for you is, is that real growth and, and is GDP a, a good measure of, of, of growth or are there, are there better alternatives or, or is there a more complete picture? Yeah, those are, those are three really great questions in a row at the end. Uh, GDP is, is very, very far from perfect. And what's interesting is the, uh, the people behind GDP initially, a guy named Stanley Kuznets was the main proponent of a, of a measure called gross national product or gross domestic product. And the reason he advocated for that was we were flying blind during the Great Depression and trying to come out of the Great Depression. We just, we didn't know how, like, how the country was doing, how the economy was doing. It did, didn't have those measures in place. So Kuznets and others said, okay, we're going to create this thing. We're going to try to measure the output of the United, the total output of the United States economy. When he did that, he was clear that this is not a welfare measure. And that's not welfare in the you know poor, uh, low-income people sense. That's welfare in the well-being sense. Mm -hmm. And Kuznets and most good economists since then have been careful to say this is not a measure of how well we as a people are doing overall. That message gets lost. And so we still quote the GDP numbers every quarter, and we still over-focus on that measure. Is there one measure that's a better one? Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe um, quality adjusted life expectancy 
mm. might be a better, if you could look at one number, might be a better way to assess the health of a society overall. Maybe. GDP ain't bad because it's pretty tightly correlated with other things that we should care about, like health. Now, amazingly enough, like happiness. Uh, there's this notion that we hear that your happiness plateaus after I think it's 75K a year. It's actually not accurate. It really does keep going up. So we want a high GDP number because we want a lot of prosperity. And But what GDP doesn't tell us is how that prosperity is shared and whether we have equality of access to healthcare, equality of access to opportunity, social mobility. That's just not captured by GDP. These things are crazy important. Even before the pandemic, um, two really good economists who happen to be married to each other, Susan Case and Ann Deaton, dug into the mortality data for the United States, and they highlighted this phenomenon, I believe in 2014 or 2015, about the deaths of despair. And they found that at that time, particularly middle-aged, particularly white, less educated Americans were seeing their life expectancy go down instead of up over time because of a combination of alcoholism, um, I'm sorry, um, acute, acute liver disease, uh, drug overdoses and uh, suicide. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, should I've, we have known about that sooner than we did? Did it take two economists, one of whom happened to have a Nobel Prize, to highlight that for us? Should we have had better better radar than that? Yes, absolutely. So I kind of wish we had a cockpit of a half dozen indicators that we yes. all agree are really important for the overall health of our society. And let's talk about those every month or those every quarter. It's not yeah. that hard to do. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. GDP being one of those gauges, yeah. but there are so many other gauges. Uh, I, I do want to push back on the idea. I, I've always disagreed with this. Uh, Seventy-five thousand dollars is the the uh, the number. Um, although I, I don't think I, I think that of course the potential uh, increases when you have greater freedom, and I think money does buy you freedom. I think the problem with yeah. with the the way that we outline this is people often think if they get a million dollars, all of a sudden they're going to be happy. <laughs> we, we obviously, we, we, ha we actually have a data set of these people, you know, they're, they're called lottery winners and, um, show me a happy lottery winner. And, and I'll show you someone who has won the lottery twice because, um, <laughs> most people who have won the lottery end up broke miserable, far less happy than, than they were. And of course, is it possible to be to be poor and and be happy? Yes, we we have countless examples of this, and it does. We don't have to look at just Gandhi or or other people or or, right. or entire civilizations who tend to be happier yeah. than ours. And I think a lot of that happiness has to do with the expectations uh, that we have. And then money does allow us to fill some of those expectations. But what happens when we get the pay raise? Well, we're already spending toward the next pay raise. Yeah, if we're, especially if we're not thoughtful about it, right? And I agree with you, money opens up opportunities and it makes problems and headaches go away, a lot of them anyway. It makes it easier to worry less about certain things. Amen. Um, you bring up the fact that it is not impossible for low-income people to be happy. Man, I could not agree more with that. And when you look at the country-level data about happiness, there's this weird clump of countries that are not super high income, but really high, comparatively high happiness, life satisfaction, whatever measure you want to look at. They're the Latin American countries. Mm. And I think the short but correct explanation is those countries take social capital and, and socializing very, very seriously. It's super deep in the culture. It To the point we were discussing earlier, it actually does make you happy. And so those Latin American countries kind of float up in this clump, which is where you would want to be, of more happiness than you would expect for an income level. Well, let me ask you about, as we as we try to solve all of the world's problems here on, uh, on, on this podcast today, Andy. <laughs> on one single podcast episode. Yes. Man, we're good. Um, let, let, let me ask you about technology. You're, you're obviously a, a big supporter of technology and, and innovation, a big fan of it. Um, and what I always worry about is technology obviously creates quite a few problems in, in our lives. And it seems quixotic for us to try to solve technological problems with more technology. Like I have a, a good friend, Cal Newport, um, who wrote a book called Digital Minimalism. He is a, a professor oh, at yeah. Georgetown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great That's book. That's a great book. 
and I, I love Cal, but what I what I what I don't like is that he often tries to solve productivity problems with with more sort of productivity technology and apps and, and as opposed to just say what I often say is well just do less if you want to be more productive. Um, it, 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 does it not seem quixotic to you that we we we're almost trying to consume our way out of this problem of of overconsumption that has led to the the sort of um, economic not, not just economic disaster that we're in, which by the way, you know, it, it's uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, the the uh, the economy that's predicated on buying a bunch of useless junk yeah. is not a, a strong economy necessarily. Um, but we, we can talk more about that. But in, in terms of uh, we've created this problem, we can't simply consume our way out of it. But it seems to me that also in your book, you 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 don't think that reducing our consumption alone is is the solution. So let me try to take on both those because those are pretty deep questions. I think you make a, a really interesting point that using technology to solve technological problems is a bit of a treadmill and might not be the best answer using an app to solve your app addictions. Okay. Mm. I, I, I see the problem there. I think you and I would agree that first best is self-knowledge, discipline, being able to walk away from the devices, from the screens, being able to, you know, take your time off, take a walk, talk face to face with somebody, have fewer screens between you and the wall. That's absolutely first best. I do think that apps that lock down social media or apps that turn off your screen for 15 minutes every hour or apps that give you a reminder that it's time to get up and walk around, those things might have their place and they mm -hmm. might help you get to first best initially. So, you know, we use better diets to fix the previous bad diets that we have. We use food to fix food. Mm -hmm. Maybe technology is part of the answer for for our technology problems. However, I, I do think you're on, you're on to an important point here. Just throwing one more app at something does not by itself solve the proliferation of apps problems. Well, speaking of apps, uh, smartphones. And then, and then the other, let me say, let me say one more thing. Cause you, you asked another deep question there, which is, isn't consumption itself and especially mindless consumption or consumption of use, useless, you know, consumer trinkety kinds of things. Isn't that the problem? And you and I have been agreeing violently that those trinkets are not good paths to happiness or greater sense of meaning, fulfillment, all that stuff. The, the reason I, I am still a fan of consumption is because I think of consumption as almost a synonym for prosperity. And, and what I mean by that is not just buy one more piece of plastic, but consumption means consuming things like entertainment, education, knowledge, information, uh, experiences, travel. A lot of things that, that, that are, make for a rich life are also things that we consume. Over time, I want people to have the opportunity and the option to consume more, which is another way of saying that I want them to be more prosperous, which is another way of saying I want them to be more rich. I'll kind of mix all those words together instead of trying to tease them apart. The other thing we have to keep in mind is that your consumption is my income. And if we all decide to consume less, that's the same thing as saying we're heading into a recession. Mm. And recessions can be tough times. You talked about your brother getting laid off. Layoffs are things that happen when overall consumption goes down. So what I hear you guys doing is encouraging your audience and your fans to be mindful about the things that they consume, about the choices that, my, that they make. I'm here for you guys. I, I'm, I'm completely on board with that. Saying to the world that we need to reduce our overall consumption is, to in economist language, pretty close to advocating the, that we enter a global recession. And I'm not going to sign up for that one. Yeah. I, I, in fact, what, what I would say, I'd make a distinction. I say there, there's nothing inherently wrong with consumption. I think compulsory consumption or consumerism tends to be our problem. Yeah. And, and yeah. Amen. Uh, when, I, when I make that distinction, um, there are plenty of things that we consume. In fact, we need to consume in order to live. I mean, at the most fundamental level, we need housing and food and, and all of the essentials. Right. What, what we, what right. we, 
individualize, I think, are those non-essentials, the things that we talked about earlier that add value to our lives. Uh, and those are, those are so highly individual. And by the way, the thing that was essential for me a decade ago before I had a family and before you know, I was in Los Angeles, et cetera, there, the, these were things that were essential at the moment, but they don't continue to be essential. And so I, right. I, have, to let, I have to let those go to make room for the, the new essentials or the new things that add value to my life all the way, keeping in mind that I don't need to cling to it. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from David Foster yeah. Wallace. He, uh, in Infinite Jest, uh, the, the quote is, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. Um, but of course that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> not letting go at all. Right. And I think that's what that's we do. We, good. We, we hold on to these things be, in, until we're forced right. to, to sort of drop them. Uh, again, you and I are violently agreeing here, but you said one of the basic necessities of life is food. Duh, of course. But if you look over time, one of the striking things is how much better food has gotten. And I'm not talking about just the, the, the salty snacks that the snack companies try to push at us all the time. Yep, that, that's a little bit of an exception to this pattern mm. that I'm talking about. But if you look at the variety and the quality of food that an average person has access to, it would yeah. have staggered the imagination of the Rockefellers. I'm really not exaggerating very much. So whenever I walk into a supermarket with those kind of eyes – I'm literally stunned because the first thing I see, of course, I shop at Whole Foods. I'm you know, one more Cambridge yuppie. I shop at Whole Foods and you walk in and there's you know, the produce section. And it's like the United Nations. There's food there from all over the world. I live in New England. I can walk in in the dead of February and pick up an orange mm-hmm. at, at, at a very reasonable price point and go home and eat that. Man, very few people had that 100 years ago. Even fewer had it 200 years ago. And so our ability to consume better food, a richer variety of food, to choose to consume it in a restaurant versus cook it at home or cook for our friends and to do it with ingredients from around the world. Every time you think about the evils of globalization, you also have to think about the benefits of globalization and just the ability for people, not just you know, yuppies in Cambridge who want to eat um, uh, like a, a, a mandarin orange in February, but people all over the world at every income level, their ability to consume uh, a sufficient number of calories all around the world and higher quality, more variety. It's just been one of the great triumphs of modern life. It's easy to overlook. And I like to kind of bookmark these things and remind ourselves of the progress that we've made. Let's let's pivot really quickly to to smartphones because I have this device in my pocket that has undoubtedly made my life better and undoubtedly made my life worse at times. And, and I have to, I have to put that caveat in there. I don't think the smartphone is the problem. I think I'm the problem if it's making my life worse. Um, and, and it's just like if, uh, if I have a low battery on my, on my, on my smartphone, I'm, it's probably <laughs> yeah, not the battery kicks in, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's probably not the it's probably not the phone's fault. It's probably my fault that I have a a a, yeah. a low battery. And so, um, let's talk about the the sort of impact on the planet, though. Are, are we we hear this this I- idea that smartphones are bad for the planet, but it seems yeah. to me that you have a different take on that. And I do. I think we've in total manufactured. I, I'm going to get this number wrong. I think it's on the order of a couple billion smartphones over the, what is it, 12, 13-year history of that device since the iPhone was introduced. Mm -hmm. Now, those 2 billion smartphones have an ecological footprint. Absolutely. We took a lot of plastic. We took a lot of minerals and rare earth metals out of the earth. We made 2 billion smartphones out of them. And then we threw those 2 billion away and didn't recycle them very much at all. So they're sitting in some landfill or at the bottom of an ocean, or they're all around the world. You can look at that ecological footprint in isolation and say, man, smartphones have been bad for the planet. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think what you have to do is compare the world that we do live in because of the smartphone with the world that we would be living in had the smartphone never been introduced. And in that world, how many more camcorders are there? How many more film cameras are there? How many more answering machines are there? How many more cathode ray tube screens are there? Mm -hmm. How many more fax machines are there? And going along with all that, 
how many more CDs, how many more DVDs, how many more cassette tapes, how many more VHS tapes, how many more maps have been printed out. When you compare the, the ecological footprint of universe B that I've just described, where the smartphone was never introduced, to universe A that we're living in, which has the smartphone, holy cow, if I care about the planet, give me universe A all day long. Give me more of that. And that's right. the, the phenomenon at the heart of, of more from less of my book is the example of the smartphone. And then you can just cascade on from that and keep finding examples of how technological innovation lets us literally, here's the title of the book, lets us do more with less. I have access, you know, it, it's, it still astonishes me. It's kind of like the supermarket full of food. I have access to the world's music mm. with the free app on my phone. What? <laughs> I can call up kind of, you know, and my taste in music is pop. So I don't, I'm not going like, you know, super deep jazz that they might not have on Spotify. I can call up just about any piece of music I want to listen to at any point in time and enjoy that. And you're trying to tell me that's a worse world than when you had to walk uphill five miles in the snow each way to go buy a CD. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a better, better world. And it comes with an, an amazingly small planetary footprint. Now, one thing that you hear is that the digital economy and the smartphone economy is such an energy, such an electricity hog that it's screwing up our planet. I, I can kind of understand that argument. It's just dead flat wrong. It's dead flat wrong. A friend of mine is a guy named Jonathan Kumi, K-O-O-M-E-Y, and he's an energy nerd. He would agree with that um, out at, in California. And he's done this lovely work to quantify the electricity footprint of the digital economy. And he says it takes up just about as much electricity as it did, I forget if it was 10 or 20 years ago. In other words, it's a decent chunk of the world's electricity. It's about the same as it was a decade ago, even though we've got all you know, got the cloud, we got streaming, we got smartphones. What happens is that these digital industries grow, but they also get massively more efficient over time because they don't want to spend money on electricity and electricity costs money. So this drive for profits is a point that I try to make over and over in my book. The drive for profits is also inherently always a drive to cut costs, a drive toward efficiency. And you can get to the point, and we are there, where that drive to efficiency starts to dominate and you start to consume fewer resources, less energy, all that stuff overall because of the crazy efficiency gains that come from progress, innovation, technology. It seems like there's there's one more place for efficiency here, and that's making our smartphones better so that they last longer. I think of all these examples yeah. of the, the camcorder and the fax machine and the answer machine, and you're absolutely right. But I do remember having an answer machine, the same answer machine for more than a decade, and it seems that now we're replacing our smartphones every year or so. And if we could just expand that a bit to two, three, or even four years, uh, I think the amount of waste would... Uh, I mean, it'd be a staggering yeah. savings there. I, I think I think that's a fair point. But think about why we're buying those smartphones every year or two. And I'll raise my hand. I am guilty. I, I upgrade like crazy. Is it because my old phone suddenly doesn't work anymore? The battery does degrade over time. That's true. But in general, I think the phone that I was using three or four years ago was an astonishingly powerful device. And if I could find it and power it up, it would still work just fine. It's the, it's me again, you know, you, you, you made this point earlier. It's us. I want the shiny new thing. I hear about the new capabilities. I hear how much faster it is. I hear how much better the camera is. And I've got an iPhone 11. The camera is astonishing on the thing. It's just, it you cannot believe that this, you know, point and shoot idiot who doesn't know anything about <laughs> photography is taking these glorious pictures. Okay. You know, I don't want to live my life as an Instagram influencer, but I also like to be able to share a really high quality photo with social media, with friends and family or something about something that I experienced. And this phone makes me look like a pro when I take a picture. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about um, I mean, that's certainly a huge, a huge benefit. Um, I'm thinking about the other side of this, though. Um, have, did you read there was a book that came out last year? Um, by Dr. Christopher Ryan called Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. And well, you and you and, and Chris totally disagree on the problem, but I think you actually agree oh. on, on, on the solution. 
Um, it's a phenomenal book. It's, I mean, if there are, there's a list of like six books I wish I would have written, and I think Civilized to Death is, is one of them. And while he oh, illustrates, it yeah, it, it's a phenomenal book. It, and um, what, what I love is he, he lays out the problem. And I think the first line of the book actually is call me ungrateful because he lives in this great uh, progressive world, this world where we, we have all this innovation and technology. But he, he is also uh, sort of lamenting the fact that we don't have just 150,000 people on Earth and, and also realizes we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and, and um, go back to our you know, Paleolithic days sort of thing. But also he, he questions in a way, rather facilely, I, I might add, um, you know, Danny Kahneman's arguments of, of, of progress. And, however, I look at the other side and I see someone like you who in more from less, you, you lay out a, um, a, a rosy world that has certainly progressed. And, and as you mentioned, we are, we're much better off than, uh, from we were, where we were in 1700. The question is, are we better off than where we were, um, 17,000 years ago? When average lifespan was what? You know, I, and I don't, I don't know the data at the top of my head. Yeah. From, he, from I mean, he actually 15, tackles that. He, he tackles ago. that data in the book. It's, it's actually about the same when you, when you remove infant mortality, which was, was, was very dramatic back then. Uh, and so I, that's I like you, saying, yeah, that's like saying it's the same until you take out the biggest thing that killed people at an early stage of their life while making their parents, uh, miserable. So I, I'm not going to take out <laughs> infant mortality. That's kind of a big deal, right? That's right, one of the right. biggest human deals of all. And, right, but when we hear the number thirty, think, like thirty-three years old or something, we we yeah yeah we that, that's, that, that's life expectancy at birth, and that the big chunk is because of infant mortality. I get exactly. that. It is also true that life expectancy at any age is a lot better today than it was twenty thousand years ago. Uh, I I will I will try very very hard. You would find claw marks on any effort to drag me back into the life that our distant ancestors lived 20,000 years ago. I think, what is it? Um, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I think that's not a terrible description. I really do. Yeah. I, uh, the, I, the, the level, and Steven Pinker talks about this a great deal. The level of, of violence, small scale, large scale violence uh, has gone down dramatically as we've gone deeper into modernity. So I, like, I really want to read this book, but as you're describing it, I don't, I'm not signing up for the central premise of it. It, re it reminds me of this great line. This book sounds a little bit nostalgic to me. And someone had a great line. He said, um, nostalgia is like a grammar lesson because we find the present tense and the past perfect. <laughs> yep. I, I think present, that's a phenomenal. The present is tense. Yeah. The present <laughs> is tense. Give me the present all day long. Yeah, you, you know, I I agree with you, and I, nor do I want to go back to a a, a world before electricity or before Wi-Fi yeah. or or anything else. And and while that sounds like it would be the central tenet of the book, it's more of a of an observation of how maybe life wasn't as bad as as we thought back then, even though we would want to live an appreciably different life. But I, I think also that you and I have been acculturated to live a, a particular life. It's the same reason I wouldn't want to go live in, in, in Russia we, right now. Okay. Now I, I do want to read this book, but what percentage of the world's population lived in servitude or slavery 20,000 years ago? And that was a broadly acceptable thing to do. How were you know, women's rights and minority rights doing? I think you'd have to choose where you want to be born into the world of 20,000 years ago. Very, very carefully before it would stand up at all to, to what we have today. Well, the reason I bring up 20,000 years ago, and, and I, it's surprising because I think you and I probably agree more with, with Chris Ryan than, than I'm able to articulate here, but um, you know, we're talking pre-civilization, right? And so if we're talking yeah. pre-civilization, what we're, what we're really talking about is, is functionally 0% of people were, were enslaved and women's rights were actually phenomenal pre-civilization. It wasn't until Ooh, we became I civilized. Be I want to be careful about, uh, I want to be careful about that. And again, this is, these are things that we can go explore with the different kinds of evidence. Sure. My read of the things that I've seen are that, um, I, I don't think, um, hunter gatherer societies were models of sexual egalitarianism or female rights. Now, I think that there's probably active debate about this, yeah, I but think so. I want to be really careful about that. Now it is true. What are there? 7.8 billion pe 
people on, in the world on the world today. Yeah. And we have a huge footprint on our planet. I talk about this a couple different ways and more from less. It is true that if there were one tenth as many of us, we would have a much, much, much smaller footprint on the planet. That's true. Mm. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> Should I get nostalgic for when there were that many people? Am I supposed to sign up for a 90% genocide? I, I honestly, I don't know what to do with that information no, beyond I, being mindful that our job should be, regardless of how many of us there are, our job should be to lower our overall footprint on our planet. And the whole reason I wrote more from less is to make the argument that we can do that. We can lower that overall footprint without having to sign up for population control economic control, these draconian, horrible things in a lot of ways. Uh, go ask the average Chinese family how they felt about um, the one-child policy. And, and look how many, again, moral crimes were committed in that attempt at that, that unnecessary attempt at population control. I'll get a little agitated about these things because I think they were just huge um, moral and human mistakes. Oh, we, we, we totally agree on that. And uh, I'm, I'm actually be interested to uh, once all of, once we're on the other side of all of this, maybe we'll bring you and, and Chris on not to have a debate because I don't think debates are useful at all. But I'd love to figure out I think there's so many places where you two agree, like if there's a Venn diagram between civilized to death. <laughs> oh, you, you think there's a lot of intersection there? I really do. And and I, I think maybe yeah, you disagree about the problem, but I think your solutions are really close to each other because you we, we all recognize regardless of what it was like a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago, uh, we're not putting that toothpaste back in the tube. And so the question is, how do yeah. we move forward given the information we have? That's right. And so I've got some questions exactly here right. from our audience. And uh, one one of them had to do with um, with population. So let, let's dive into that one. Uh, someone named Red Fox Tracker is asking, "Is it? Con I know it's controversial to discuss, but reducing consumption doesn't address so many uh, doesn't it address the fact that so many people need so many things. Can the planet support everyone? Is responsible population planning? I I, I worry about that that term. Um, but he's saying is responsible population planning more important than consuming less? And I mean, I think what what your answer is is probably a third way here. We we're not going to control the population. Um, we 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 don't want to have population planning. I think of eugenics when I hear the term population planning, and that's a huge moral failure. Um, I I think we yeah. want to consume less of uh, of the nonsense, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to stop consuming. And so, um, what you're saying is is that there's a third way. That, yeah, absolutely what I'm saying. I, and I want to say something else as well, which is that when you look at the evidence over time, you have a really hard time making a case for population control. The world's population has increased tremendously over the 20th century. It was accelerating around the time of the first Earth Day in 1970. And a lot of people said, gang, this, this exponential growth in population can't continue. We won't be able to feed everybody. There'll be a gigantic crash. We're going to run out of the world's resources. I want to be really clear. None of that happened. Mm. None of that happened. There are a lot more people than there were 50 years ago on the planet. They're living longer lives. They're living healthier lives. They have access to more food across the world. Starvation has almost, I, I, no, I don't want to say that because I don't know the data that well. Um, food inavailability is a tiny fraction of what it used to be. Mm -hmm. our, our ability to produce food to feed people has gone up more quickly than the population has. We are turning the corner in more and more places on ecological devastation that comes along with population. But as a country gets rich, it starts to reforest, not deforest. Mm. So when I look around at the evidence, man, I have a hard time making the case that each additional person is going to make the world a, a more reduced, a more poor place overall. And the immediate um, consequences of thinking about population control start to terrify me immediately. To me, that's entirely different than giving people control over their reproductive lives. And uh, man, sign me up. Like I'm, I'll do that all day long give people the control, what that will do is bring about the demographic transition more quickly. And the demographic transition is really well understood. As mm -hmm. a country gets richer, the number of children per family goes down. People That's choose right. just to have fewer kids as, as they, they become more prosperous overall. Great. 
Let's get everybody to that point. Um, the different estimates say that we're going to hit peak humanity, I believe, sometime between 2050 and 2100. Depends on which estimate that you look at. But the notion that, that human population is just going to keep growing, that, that's absolutely false. It's going to plateau. And we're gradually going to bring these species down a curve. I don't know exactly what that curve looks like. But the notion that we're just going to overrun the planet is false. The evidence points in the other direction. Mm. Uh, Zach has a question for us. Given that we're seeing the ramifications of an economy built on consumption and excess, how do we encourage businesses to instead focus on essentials and sustainability? How can we possibly convince people to see that our brand of unfettered capitalism is bad for us? And also, what are the pros and cons of capitalism? And so um, a lot to unpack <laughs> Wait, there. Wait, as an afterthought, you want me to handle that one? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think maybe the, my line of thought on, on this is simple, that if your economy is predicated on consuming excess, uh, we're finding this now, then, then it's probably a, a vulnerable economy because right now we're not, a, we're not able to consume excess. And, and at least many of us are, are, are not able to, and we're having to tighten the belts and figure out what is truly essential. I, I, I think hear you, what's that, but this, this is where my, this is, does activate my libertarian genes uh -huh. because I don't want anybody telling me what excess is. Now I want to be clear. I'm, I will absolutely support and sign up for my government telling me that I have to practice social isolation for a while because there's a pandemic going on. That's what mm -hmm. public health is for, right? Absolutely. Do I want my government looking over my consumption choices and saying that's excess, that's not? No. I mean, in, in fact, what I think I wanna, this no, happened no, in no, Michigan. No, let me, let me right? talk a little bit more. Okay. What, what if I want to go to a fancy restaurant one time? Is, is that excess? You're going to cap the price of an entree? What if I want to take a trip halfway around the world? I, I just get super nervous about somebody else's definition of excess consumption. Um, setting the tone for the discussion too much. What I'm thrilled about are projects like yours, which just remind us, look, consumerism, it gets pushed on you from all these different quarters. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't fulfill you. Think more carefully about the, the things that you want to consume, the choices that you make. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here talking with you. I'm thrilled that you're doing this effort. When I came across Marie Kondo, who I'm sure, you know, her name comes up a lot in, in sure. your world, oh, yeah. it, you know, it, it was revelatory for me. And I went through and took out tons of stuff from my house. It's better as a result. I'll sign up for all that. I just don't love any kind of central definition of excess totally agree. determining my consumption patterns. I think excess is perspectival. And yeah. Um, and by the way, the, the, I, I have a family right now, and so it's going to be different for me versus you know, sure. some some single person who's in college listening to this as well. And what I have might be excess to them and, and vice versa. Yeah. So if you want some sort of central governing body determining what that is, and you yeah. know, here are the 150 items you should own, and if you have a spouse, it's 300 items. If you have a kid, it's 400 yeah. items. It, that's a nightmare. That's a dystopian future that I don't that, I was just about to use that word, man. That is crazy dystopian dystopian sci-fi for me. And look, I don't understand people's consumption choices either. I, I, I lost track of how many headlines I've read about the latest crazy penthouse that Jeff Bezos bought and is going to remodel. And wow, I'm going to admit, I feel a little jealous about that. <laughs> Do I want the government limiting how many swank pads Jeff Bezos can have? No, I do not. Yeah. Uh, well, what about and, and by extension, do I think that every billionaire is a policy failure? I do not. Right. We've known for a long time. We've known since Adam Smith that with great prosperity, with great innovation, with great technology, inequality also comes along with that. And we should be mindful about in, about equality of access to opportunity, about mobility, about access to health. We're failing on these things. We need to do better. I'm personally not bothered by crazy rich people. I'm really not. Are, are there um, are there cons of capitalism that you discuss in your book at all? The, the cons I discuss are the, some of the ones we've already talked about. Uh, un, unfettered capitalism is terrifying to me. There's just this relentless hunger that will take in everything as an input in an attempt to turn out any output that they can convince somebody to buy. 
So, of course, if you have unfettered capitalism, you'll sell to kids during Saturday morning cartoons. You'll have pajamas that catch on fire. You'll use whales as raw material. No one will will call you out on how much pollution you're generating. This is another dystopian nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. So every decent economist that I get to hang around with absolutely understands that you need to constrain this this relentless engine of production and consumption. You need to have institutions in place that narrow it and limit it and try to channel it in the right directions. Amen. And as part of that, you need a society that asks interesting questions like the ones you guys are asking. Is, is all this really working? Is it making us happy? What about this thing called minimalism? Would, would that be a good thing to have? Man, fantastic. Let's have that as one of the checks on kind of unfettered capitalism. Naram has a question here for us. We Americans can do all we want to save the planet, and I'm all for it, but what will the rest of the world do? China and India are the biggest polluters, and they don't seem concerned with the planet. How do we solve that equation? I, um, I think it's a great point. I disagree with a couple aspects of it. China has recently started to care in some really encouraging ways. Okay. And the air pollution in China it has been catastrophically bad. It is now getting better very quickly. Even before the pandemic, it was getting better quite quickly. I think because the government realized that families were leaving cities, even without permission, because they were watching their children suffocate slowly. And they said, I'm, I'm not sticking around for this. God. When the Chinese government decides to take action, it can be really successful really quickly. We saw this with the containment in Wuhan. We saw it also with air pollution. Air pollution went down about 30% across the country in the space of four years after the government decided to get tough about it. After we passed the, the strengthening of the Clean Air Act in 1970, it took America 12 years to have that same scope of reduction. Chinese have been incredibly successful at that. They have also started to take con what, what an American would call conservation much more seriously. Uh, Yao Ming did a documentary about the illegal trade for ivory, and I think it made a difference in the country. It is either now illegal or it will soon be illegal to trade in ivory products, which is amazing news. And there are three strict bans on buying, selling, and owning tiger and rhino products in China. And those mm. bans are not just press releases, they appear to have teeth. So uh, we do see lower income countries as they get richer, and China's become richer with remarkable speed. We see what we would expect, which is that they start to be concerned about more and more things, and they start to sign up and become better stewards of the planet. I desperately hope that same thing happens to India. The air pollution problems there are catastrophically bad, and the government does not appear to have its act together yet. But Indira Gandhi said in 1972, are not poverty and need the greatest polluters? I think she was right. If we make the rest of the world rich, the rest of the world would do exactly what we did when we got rich, which is to look around and say, I want to look at other animals. I don't want to breathe disgusting air. I want clean water. I demand a better environment here. We just need to get the rest of the world prosperous to the point that they can make those same demands. That's the biggest thing I worry about right now with the the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic is uh, I think poverty, you can you can make arguments that it's either the the number one killer in the United States or it's the the number one comorbidity factor, depending on how you want to measure it. And 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 it, 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 it's no secret that if you can't pay for your health care or you can't pay for treatment, of course, you have a higher likelihood of uh, of dying or ending up ill from, yeah. from an illness like this. And, and are you as likely to care about air pollution, to care about a threatened species? Yeah, that's no, true. No, you got to worry about putting food on the table and feeding your family and getting basic health care. I, I agree. Uh, the, 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 the income shock that's going on because of this pandemic is bad news for the people involved. It's bad news for civic society. It's bad news for the environment. We said this earlier, man, I'm, I'm not here to try to find silver linings in the COVID pandemic. This thing sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that pandemic, Hala says, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic will significantly slow the consumption of so much unnecessary stuff like fast fashion? Um, I mean, if I were to, 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 to answer this, I, I would say that I think we're all starting to ask that question now. The question that Ryan and I with The Minimalists have been 
trying to answer over the last decade is what is essential. And people are starting to question because they're forced. When, when you add these constraints, you start getting really creative. You know, it's been a long time since I've had a haircut and people are doing haircuts at home. <laughs> they're figuring stuff out that they probably wouldn't have paused to figure out before. And I think one of those right. things is they're starting to, to question all of the excess stuff they were bringing into their lives that for yeah. them, they're finally realizing like, wow, maybe that wasn't adding the value that I initially yeah. thought it was. Yeah, that's on the demand side. On the supply mm. side, I can make one pretty clear prediction because this is the same thing that happens during all previous recessions. Companies get really, really focused on their costs. Man, they start to get out the magnifying glass and look at how I can shave a little bit off here. Long periods of economic expansion make companies a little bit complacent, like they make us complacent with our household spending. I guarantee you this recession is it, recession is focusing companies with laser intensity on how they can take costs out. Now, the bad news is we're seeing the layoffs that result from that. The good news is they're also going to see how they can save on energy, how they can trim out materials usage, how they can tighten up their supply chain so there's less waste. Great. This will lighten our footprint on the planet independent of the belt tightening that we have to do. Aaron has a question for us. There is a lot of back and forth between who is and what is to blame for environmental degradation. Um, some say it's on us as individuals. Some say it is all corporations and government's fault. What do you think? Uh, in, in my book, in More From Less, I talk about four horsemen of the optimist, and they come in two pairs. The first one is the combination of tech progress and capitalism which turns out more and better stuff while using fewer resources. Uh, your questioner was talking about pollution. That one is addressed by the other two horsemen in my book, which are an aware public, and I mean aware of the damages that we're causing and aware of the need to improve and a government that responds to the will of its people. And I'll say it again, the reason I'm so intently grateful to Earth Day 50 years ago and the environmental movement that came out of it is we got both those things. Man, we had an aware public. The protests were huge around the country 50 years ago in April with people saying, stop polluting my world and stop killing the whales and all these other creatures. And governments listened to them. Not all, not adequately, not uniformly, but we signed a nearly global moratorium on whales on whale hunting, for example. We signed an almost global moratorium on CFCs that were putting the hole in the ozone layer in, I believe, I think it was 1990 when the Montreal Protocol got signed. We have come together in the past, not just at the national level, even at the global level, and made difficult choices, choices that were resisted by incumbents. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of just shaking our fingers at companies and telling them to pollute less. I think that makes us feel a little more virtuous. Yeah. I don't, I, I would love it if I saw more evidence that it made a difference, right? Mm. Um, so, I, so I focus on the, the combination of an aware public that demands actions and governments where people want to get reelected, they have to respond to their constituents, and they take things like pollution and ecosystem loss very seriously. That's our way forward to improve the environment, I believe. And I, I think we're starting to see it in other countries like China. How so? When you say we're seeing it in other, in other countries. Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier. The, the Chinese people were saying, we will not keep living in these cities that are so polluted. We're not going to do this. They've been expressing more support for protecting endangered animals, even ones that produce ivory. And the Chinese have had a huge thirst for ivory for, for a long, long time. I think both those things are improving. I think the Chinese government is taking steps in the right direction instead of the wrong direction on both those fronts over time. I also put in the book that China had this nationwide program to educate farmers on how to get good crops while using much less fertilizer. And mm. it's apparently some runaway success. Great. That's another way to reduce our footprint. Using too much fertilizer is a terrible idea for the environment. The reason these farmers were doing it is because they thought they had to in order to get a good crop. Once they were taught a, a less fertilizer intense way to get that same crop, they don't want to spend that money on fertilizer. Great. Let all that stuff work. Finally, we have one more question here from Brett. It's about recycling, which uh, this tends to come up, but uh, I like the way he framed this question here. Is recycling actually making a difference? 
I've heard a lot about how expensive it is to recycle materials and that most recycled waste ends up in landfills anyway. It seems as if it is merely perceived as a responsible decision for the environment. So I'd be curious to see what the data says. I've got an article on exactly this topic coming out in Wired uh, as soon as I finish it and then after a little bit, um, where I look at in particular plastics recycling, which is something that we have been told is a really important, really valuable thing to do. And the evidence convinces me otherwise. Mm. Uh, the only way, for example, that America's post-consumer plastic winds up in the ocean is if we put it in our recycle bins. If we put oh. it in the trash bin, it goes to landfill. And when you hear the word landfill, a lot of people think of a town dump from the 1940s. You know, there are rats everywhere and birds flying overhead. It's this environmental nightmare. That might have been true in the 1940s. Uh, modern landfills are very environmentally stable. They are regulated like crazy as they should be. And they're basically a big old hole in the ground that is walled off from the rest of the environment. So I really, I've got very little problem with modern landfills. We put our trash in that landfill, landfill fills up, you seal it, you put earth on top, you build a solar farm or a playground, end of story. I, I just don't see a bunch of harm there. You put plastic in a recycle bin. It enters this really weird, complex global supply chain where essentially it gets turned into a bale of plastics. And very often that bale gets put on a ship and sent to a low income country with very, very poor pollution controls. And it is not the case that everything in that bale winds up getting recycled. There's a uh, great in a terrifying sense documentary called Plastic China that looks at what actually happens inside the Chinese recycling industry. And you watch these desperately poor people pick through oceans of plastic for the stuff that they can actually turn into pellets and, and recycle uh, profitably. Mm. And the rest just kind of blows off into the environment oh or gets dumped in an open pit or gets burned or winds up in the oceans. So depending on how you do the calculation, if there's a wide range, I think we Americans put something between about 70,000 and 700,000 containers worth of our plastic trash in the ocean via our recycling efforts over the year. This needs to stop. Absolutely needs to stop. It sounds to me like like the answer is, again, it's not uh, a zero waste lifestyle, although I really applaud the people who who, who try that out. I know that it's not practical for most of us. and I it's can't imagine how much work that is, but Right. Wow. Right. But and so I, for, for me, I've always been a proponent of of consuming less of the unnecessary yeah. things. So if I have yeah. the option of you know, bringing my own bag instead of getting the plastic bag at at the store, I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, although, of course, if I'm just buying a bunch of the canvas bags, that's probably worse on the environment than having individual it paper. Right. Bags. It actually is. It turns out you need to reuse that canvas, that hemp, that whatever bag. Many, many, many times. Hey, like 10,000 times. Yeah, it depends on which sure. study you look at. Yeah. Uh, before the environmental impact is lower for that than it is for just using those, those plastic bags. Keep in mind, the, the reason plastic is so cheap is that it doesn't cost very much. The raw materials don't cost very much, and they make the stuff in gigantic factories. Mm -hmm. So that's not the case for your hemp bag, your canvas bag, even your paper bag, which we chop down trees to make. Mm -hmm. So this, this gets very weird very quickly. And it's counterintuitive, especially because we've had that mantra of reduce, reuse, recycle drilled into us for 40 or 50 years. It's certainly been drilled into me. Uh, of those three, the one that I still categorically agree with is yours. It's reduce. Mm -hmm. Just think about your consumption patterns. I'm I'm a I'm less of a fan of reuse. I'm actually I think recycling probably does more harm than good overall. Wow, that is very counterintuitive. I, I'm looking forward. I know. To I that. think I just made a lot of friends with that statement. Right? Well, but no, I mean, I've, he, I've written a bit about this, and there's more coming. So if this is activating your um, punch the guy reflex, please don't. But <laughs> as like read the stuff that I've written, read the stuff that's going to come out, and let's have a constructive engagement on it. The only thing I would ask is instead of, you know, instead of trying to dunk on me or troll me again, read the evidence first and then try to do me the benefit of, of that I'm arguing in good faith and 
that I want us to take better care of the planet, not worse. And if you'll give me credit from starting from that place, and I don't think that's a lot to ask, then I hope we can have a really constructive engagement about things. If you want to be one more Twitter troll, I can't stop you. But again, that's really kind of a consumption that we want to think about a little more. Andy, send me that article when it comes out. We'll share it with yeah. our audience on, on social yeah, media. Yeah, we'll do. Um, I'm always interested in expanding my, my knowledge, especially on a topic like that. And I get that it's a very sensitive topic, but if we can remove our emotions from it, look at the yeah. evidence as opposed to looking at the ideology behind it. I, I also want to do what is best for the planet. And it right. would feel very strange for me to throw away a plastic bottle. I rarely have any plastic in my home, but there are times where I have a cleaning solution and it, feel, it feels weird to me to throw it away. But if that were actually better for the planet, then it would be irresponsible for me to try to recycle it at that point. I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm willing okay. to, to be convinced. Yeah, but all I need is for you to be willing to be convinced and to sign up in advance for team evidence over team ideology. And then we, then you and I and everybody else will have really productive discussions about things. Andy, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Folks, I want you to check out uh, more from Les. It's Andrew McAfee's book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. And Andy, I just want to acknowledge you for doing important work and, and thank you for everything that you're doing right now. I feel the same about what you're doing. This has been just has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>